Welcome to the Neanderthal Mind, bringing you riveting, educational, humorous, and sometimes serious perspectives on our Neanderthal mind. We dive deep into why what our Neanderthal ancestors did to survive still has a profound effect on our modern mind. Take a journey with us as we roll back the clock millions of years. All right, my fellow cave dwellers, if you're ready, let's get this wheel rolling. Now here's your host and the leader of the pack, Anthony Yokolano. Welcome again, cave dweller faithful, and welcome to any newcomers of the podcast, The Neanderthal Mind. Some of you know me already, but for those who do not, I am Anthony Yokolano, your host and leader of the pack of the Neanderthal mind. On this episode, we sit down with Frank Ludwig. Frank was born in Hamburg, Germany in 1964 and has lived in Sligo, Ireland since, now get this, 6237 RT, which stands for recorded time, or 1996. Something that we will cover in this conversation is the concept of a recorded time. Frank is a poet and qualified child care worker. And in 6240 real time, which would be 1999 current era, Frank published The Reaper's Valentine, his first poetry collection. He was awarded a scholarship to the Yeats Summer School, where Seamus Heaney complimented him on a very good feeling for the rhythm and the rhyme, and Frank won his first poetry competition. Frank's poems were published in magazines and anthologies in Ireland, the UK, the US, Switzerland, and Germany. As a progressive traditionalist, Frank took up poetry where it left off, the Industrial Revolution, and brought it into the nuclear age. In 2013, at the age of 49, he realized he was autistic, and at the age of 50, Frank was diagnosed as autistic. Since then, he has advocated for autism appreciation, and in 2017, he developed the theory, the autistic Neanderthal, something we will go into during this conversation. Frank had the opportunity of his lifetime recently to present at the awesome, spelled A-U, S-O-M-E, Training Conference. Awesome Training is for the parents of autistic children, which we will go a little deeper into in the interview. Frank discusses how autism played a tremendous role in our history and inventions that created this world that it is today. A quick quote Frank shared with us. People who try to fit in will never stand out, and Frank will explain that. Frank also explains how he started learning about Neanderthals and when he finally made the connection with Neanderthals and autism. A roughly 40-year journey to discover the validity of his theory, the autistic Neanderthal. We also go into Frank's liberal Neanderthal hypothesis. And of course, as always, all the links will be included in the show notes. Frank also goes into how the assimilation of the two human species was necessary for the survival of both. Frank talks about his influences for writing poetry, uh, such as Thaddeus Stevens and Charles Sumner, which again we will include links to both of those gentlemen, and the influences used for his 5,000 line poem. That's right, I said it, 5,000 line 
poem and self-published books. We touch lightly on his passion for photography. So sit back, cave dwellers, and enjoy this episode of The Neanderthal Mind. Take it away, me. Well, first off, I just I thank you very much for wanting to join me here on The Neanderthal Mind. I appreciate that. No problem. Tell me about you. Tell me about Frank. Well, I was born in Hamburg in 64, moved to Sligo in my 30s, Sligo in an island. And just before I went here, I became a childcare worker, qualified childcare worker in Germany. And I tried to find a job in Ireland, unaware that they didn't uh, employ males. And after 11 years of trying in 2007, I became the first male childcare worker in County Sligo. But it proved difficult, even though I was excellent, according to my colleagues and my bosses and the parents and the kids. I found it difficult to hold on uh, to a job because of social difficulties. I often didn't know what people wanted from me. And at the age of 50, I, well, at 49, I realized that I was autistic. And at the age of 50, I got my diagnosis. Yeah, and uh, since then, I mainly focus on uh, writing, researching topics of interest and so on. I started writing poems and stories since I was a child, so that is something I've always done. Yeah, maybe to mention that that I presented on the necessity of autism, the recent awesome conference. I had that as one of the questions, a couple down, I was going to ask you all about your, it's called awesome training, is that correct? Uh, That's correct. Let's let's get into that then. Yeah, tell me a little bit about awesome training. Yeah, I'm not involved in that at all. I I was merely a speaker at the conference. But awesome training is a course uh, that is done by Evelyn Welton, who is autistic herself, just to get parents to better understand their children and the best ways to deal with them in a respectful manner. Very good. So they, uh, so it's. Mostly just talking about how or what it's like to raise a child with autism or or how to, I guess. Yeah, actually, we, we don't say with autism. You don't say you're, you're a person with maleness or a person with maleness. <laughs> we, we are autistic. If you look at, at polls, between 85 and 95 percent always prefer identity first. We are autistic. Therefore, we are autistic persons. It's autism is nothing like we carry around and can put on, on the shelf. Like, sure, sure, sure. Well, I apologize for that, and, and I think <laughs> that's one of the uh, purposes, I guess, of the awesome training is to kind of uh, get society yeah. a, a little more understanding. Yeah, understanding. Sure, sure. Definitely. Because, like, like we uh, most of us don't really need big supports if people understood us and tolerated us for who we were, for, for who we are, life would be a lot easier for us. Sure, sure, most certainly. And it seems like there's getting more and more awareness of it as well, which is a good thing. Unfortunately, yeah. it's taken so long. But yeah, I mean, in, in the meantime, there's hardly any person uh, who is not aware of autism. And I'd like to foster autism appreciation because actually... I may quote from my speech. I, in my speech, I explained why people like Einstein 
Beethoven uh, and Gandhi uh, use their yeah, artistic identity to change things or, or to create things. And it is basically our, the, the main thing is that autistic people have a predominantly individual nature and non-autistic people have a predominantly social nature. And in my speech, I concluded, and I quote from it now, it's our failure to conform to society. It's our failure to think the way others think. It's our failure to subscribe to group dynamics and groupthink. It's our failure to give in to peer pressure. It's our failure to blindly follow tradition. It's our failure to unquestioningly obey authority. And it's our failure to accept the status quo that have driven human progress for tens of thousands of years. Thanks to autistic individuals who successfully resisted attempts at being mainstreamed. As an autistic professor once pointed out, if it weren't for autism, we'd probably be chatting away in a cave today. <laughs> <laughs> and th therefore, I, th I think autism has always played a, an important role in human evolution. And if that were appreciated and if we were tolerated and accepted for who we are, life wouldn't be that difficult for us. And reading your some of your theories and some of your papers, you know, in regards to some of the, I guess, prominent individuals who are autistic. I mean, it, it makes sense, you know, that they were able to be that prominent, I guess, because of autism. I mean, it makes sense. It really does. Yeah. There's another quote from the uh, speech is where I mentioned that people who manage to fit in can't stand out. So if you go with the flow, if, if you try to fit in with a crowd, you won't be creating anything new or, or you won't change the, the status quo. I like that. That's yeah. I like that. Then you're just kind of a, you're, you're not an individual at that point. Then you're just, you're the same as everyone else. So yeah, yeah that's pretty good. I like that one. What happened that convinced you to get, I guess, checked? I'm not sure what word you want to use and ultimately diagnosed with autism. What, uh... I, as a childcare worker, I was familiar with autism already. And there was one situation where I was working with a new colleague in a crash. She kept asking me about my background, like where I came from and if I was married. And I answered truthfully and to the point. But I kept feeling under pressure because, like, she was not my boss and that was not a job interview. So why was she asking you all these things? And all of a sudden, it dawned on me that she was just having a friendly conversation. And I almost burst out laughing. That was the moment when I realized that I'm autistic. Huh. Okay. And it took, what did you, I think in there somewhere you said 50 that you, you discovered that you might be? I was 49, 49. I was the, the year after. Then once you realized that, looking back on your life, I mean, were there a lot of signs previously? Absolutely. I already had kept saying that I have autistic traits. I, I've said that, I, I think, I think for, for, for several decades. So I was aware of autistic traits, but uh, unaware. That, that I was fully autistic, so to speak. Now, which, I guess to, to, to try and tie your theory together, autism and Neanderthals, what brought you to the Neanderthal world, in a sense? 
Uh, actually, the first part was around 1980 already when I learned about the Cro-Magnons and the Cro-Magnons, like uh, about their mysteriously large brain size and uh, that they were the first modern humans. And my first thought, actually, when I heard about them was that they must have uh, been the result of Homo sapiens interbreeding with Neanderthals, which would explain their uh, increased brain size. Then in 2013, or following up, uh, yeah, 2013, I tried to find out what autism exactly is. I was looking for patterns, as we do, and I realized that autistic people are entirely different from each other. And more than that, they are more different from each other than non-autistic people are from each other. And then it dawned on me that it was our individual nature as opposed to other people's social nature. The next part was in 2017, when I heard about, was it the superglue, that there was something that brought my attention back to the Neanderthals, where it was pointed out that they were more advanced than previously thought. So I started looking into that and became pretty clear to me that Neanderthals were intellectually superior to their Homo sapiens um, contemporaries. Because like Homo sapiens didn't really do anything until they met the Neanderthals. So, like, Neanderthals buried their dead before Homo sapiens did. Neanderthals were able to light fires before a Homo sapiens did. Neanderthals were seafarers before Homo sapiens were. So it became pretty clear that modern humans are a direct result of Neanderthal assimilation. And Neanderthals, and that's what got me to, to make the connection, Neanderthals were of an individual nature and Homo sapiens were of a social nature. And it was only uh, the admixture of both that created modern humans. And I, I think it's funny how uh, Neanderthals are always compared to modern humans who are a result of the assimilation rather than to their Homo sapiens contemporaries. So the individual nature of the Neanderthals and the social nature of Homo sapiens are both present in all of us. And I think it might be helpful just to read out the abstract of my theory. Sure, absolutely. Homo sapiens were quite unremarkable until they met the highly sophisticated Neanderthals. Assimilating the Neanderthal led to the Upper Paleolithic Revolution since it caused a drastic increase in Homo sapiens' brain size and consequently brought about their rapid evolution by combining the creativity, resourcefulness, and inquisitive spirit of Neanderthals, who were of an individual nature, with the ambition and networking skills of Homo sapiens, who were of a social nature. Since the Neanderthal assimilation, most Homo sapiens have their predominantly social nature therefore tend to ostracize those of a predominantly individual nature who, beginning in the 1940s, are being pathologized with the label of autism. 
However, human progress is driven by autistic individuals because of their original thinking, lack of conformity, immunity to group dynamics and peer pressure, skepticism of authority and discontentment with the status quo. A person qualifies for an autism diagnosis when they, due to the nature of their Neanderthal DNA and the resulting traits, exceed the level of, individual, uh, of individuality tolerated by society. Very good. <laughs> now, at the end of all of this, obviously, I'll, I'll probably send you an email to include a lot of the links to your theories and uh, you know, other things that we're going to get into uh, throughout this interview. Uh, definitely, I, I read that theory, and uh, yeah, I, I found it very fascinating. Thanks. Uh, let's see. So we already covered how how did you connect Neanderthals to autism? We already went through that. Now, so I guess around the time of you discovering that you know the connection between Neanderthals and autism is that around the time that you discovered you being autistic? Is that right around that time? Oh no, that was later. Okay. Okay. Like, like that was 2017, three years after my diagnosis. Okay, very good. Now, reading through a few of your things and, and, and like timelines that you have, you have RT on there. Now, just for everyone in case they come up with, well, not in case, whenever they come onto your websites and look up your information, what does RT represent? RT stands for recorded time. Recorded time, okay. I'm an, an anti-theist and like, Every, every culture uses dates that are that relate to their deities, or I try something new. And RT, as I said, stands for recorded time. And it, it is based on the first known uh, calendar, which dates back 6,200. I, <laughs> I don't know the numbers at the moment, but uh, it's like yeah, 6,600. Okay. 61. So that would be this year. That's what year we're in now, correct? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay, very good. So that stands for six, recorded two, six, time. 6269. And you know, I just try to follow up where I got that from. Sure. As, as I said, I researched it and it was the first uh, use of a date in human history. Very good. Okay. So let's uh, let's kind of change change course here a little bit and uh let's get into uh again i've read some of your poems as well let's so let's get into your poetry like when and why did you start writing poetry and where, where do you get your inspiration from well uh, inspiration can come from all kinds of things like uh, observations i make sometimes i a line just comes to my head and i try to make something out of it sometimes it's an abstract concept and it can take me weeks and sometimes even decades to to articulate that in a poem, like to get all the pieces together. I recently had one that took me months to prepare. I was looking for a person who was associated with the wrong cause and ended up fighting against it in order to demonstrate like the fight of individuality against like mainstream so i was looking for a person a well-known person who was on one side by birth and then started fighting for the other side and i couldn't find any well-known name 
And in the end, I went back to uh, to one I had already written a poem about, Tadeo Stevens, who was indifferent about slavery. He was a lawyer, and he won a call, uh, he won a case in which a slave owner claimed uh, his slave back, and he won the case, and he witnessed how the family of the escaped slave woman was torn apart. And the cries of the children stayed with him. And from that day on, he dedicated his life for the fight against slavery. And he was one of the leading radical Republicans besides Charles Sumner and was mainly what was a main character in pushing through the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendment. And in his case, I demonstrated the struggle between like fitting in, doing what society expects of you, against the wish to do what you know is right, his individuality. And I compared it to two wolves, like the lone wolf and the pack animal. I'm completely off topic now. <laughs> to, oh, to that's, that's okay. <laughs> Get back to poetry, like I used to write poetry when I was a child even, and continued. And in my early 30s, I decided to become more serious about it and taught myself uh, meter and rhyme and all these things, the, the different forms of stanzas, by writing an epic poem of 5,000 lines, which took me almost a year. Wow, that's, <laughs> that's very big. <laughs> so then the next topic we could go into is, um, now how many books do you have published? Well, I self-published two books. One is a poetry collection with pictures, with photographs of my Sligo poems. And the other is my, are my main articles and my poems on autism appreciation. And they're both self-published at Lulu. Apart from that, I was part of a number of anthologies and published in a few magazines, but nothing too big. And again, with that, like I had asked you with your poetry, what what led you to, to write those books? Well, I, with the Sligo poems, I, I thought it would be nice like to, well, I, I wanted to have a book available for a few people who read my poems. I chose the Sligo poems in order to get my photographs in there as well. I have a lot of photographs of Sligo. Well, I think two or three people have have ordered it so far, but I like to have it up there as an option for for people who prefer the book format to the internet. But for those interests that I uh, all this stuff is on the internet as well on my website. Sure, yeah, and definitely I'll include, uh, like I said, I'll include the links and everything to that in the show notes, and hopefully we can push more than two people towards your <laughs> towards purchasing your books and, <laughs> and uh, enjoying and embracing your poetry. Now, again, and, and on top of all that, you also do a lot of photography. I do. Yeah, I just like to, firstly, to keep memories of places I've been to, and secondly, I like to share like the the beauty of of these places, especially around Sligo, and would like 
other people to appreciate the sites as well. Yeah, I was looking at uh, some of your photography. Uh, me as well. I love uh, photographing nature. It's just a, it's a beautiful thing, and I've never posted much of my photos uh, with that. But I definitely would like to start sharing that as well because it's there's nothing more beautiful than than Mother Nature. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's see. We already touched a little bit on this, but I didn't know if you wanted to go any more into your uh, your theory, uh, autistic Neanderthal theory. I didn't know if there was anything else you wanted to touch on that or. You feel we well, covered anything earlier? I don't know if you read the liberal Neanderthal hypothesis that I recently added to it. Trying to see where that one's at. Is that the uh, was that the unifying theory of autism? Is that the is that the second that, that, step? Oh, that, that's the Neanderthal theory. Now the hypothesis that where do I have it now? Uh, the hypothesis is that that individual people of an individual nature tend to be more liberal and people of a more social nature uh, tend to be more conservative. And, uh, pointed, and this is merely a hypothesis, like the autistic Neanderthal theory is backed up by uh, scientific data and established facts. This is merely a hypothesis because it's based on, um, well, observations and logic. Maybe I'll, the gist is if we imagine a scale of between pure individuality and pure social connectedness, we will all be somewhere in between. We won't be at the extreme end. But um, those on the more individual side, from what I see, tend to make up their own minds about things and don't blindly obey authority. And the more social persons accept the hierarchy in their group they don't question the orders of their superiors and so on. And individuals see themselves, yeah, identify themselves individually. And social persons tend to identify as group members. And therefore, individuals are more accepting of any differences, while social persons give us, give in to a, an us versus them mentality, in which people are in. Uh, who are in any way, any way different, are feared, hatred, ostracized, discriminated against, and in many cases dehumanized. And I, I make a few more points like that, and I put it beneath the, the autistic Neanderthal theory because it is based on the conclusion of that theory. And uh, while you were speaking, I actually do remember reading that, and as well as you said, using the logic between being autistic in the different social realms, it, it makes the most sense. It really does. Yeah. And uh, you will actually find uh, that almost all autistic persons I know who appreciate their autism or embrace their autism are liberals. On the other hand, there are many, well, I don't know how many, but, but there are autistic people who try to suppress their identity in order to fit in. And these autistic people tend to be on the right and in some cases on the far right uh, of the political spectrum. Well, let's hope with, you know, the autism awareness that you're getting involved in, let's hope we could uh, change that fact that they try to suppress it or try to hide it. Because the one saying I, I always love is, you know, be yourself because everyone else is already taken. So, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have a favorite as well. Don't, was it? Uh, just be yourself. 
Not like that. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> now it's uh, you know I guess to get back or not get back to but switch back to a little more on a personal side of things. I noticed that you were <laughs> a bellboy, yeah, in in Munich, I believe, is what you said. Uh, in Munich, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was in the early nineties, yeah, nineteen ninety till ninety one, and well, it was an interesting time in my life. I met a few interesting people. I had a chat with the Violent Femme, if you remember them. And like one particularly memorable memory, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> uh, was when I, when I had to bring a suitcase up to a room and I knocked at the door. The lady told me to come in. So I came in and she just came out of the bathroom, only holding a small towel in front of herself. <laughs> and I, I thought I'd chat away with her a little bit, see if anything happens. And uh, she chatted away to me uh, while getting something out of the cupboard so I could see her entire back and enjoyed the view. <laughs> After I was downstairs again and told my colleagues about it, one of them asked me, which room did you say? Is that 458. And he said, did you have any clue who that was? I said, no, that was Kim Wilde. Wow. That is definitely a story to, well, maybe not tell the grandkids, but it's definitely a story to share with the fellows. Absolutely. And then the reason I brought that up is because I was actually in the hotel industry for about 10 years as well. And uh, I have a degree in hotel restaurant management. And uh, I definitely remember some some good times because uh, I was a bellman as well. And I definitely remember some some very interesting moments. And I got to meet a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of idols as well. So that's the only reason why I brought that up. Yeah. <laughs> what were yours? Mine was mostly meeting... Uh, a lot of celebrities, like the, the one hotel in Pittsburgh, we had a lot of uh, anyone who played at what used to be this, the Civic Arena. It's no longer there. They would stay at the hotel. So I guess my most memorable one, because I love jazz, was B.B. King. I got to meet B.B. King. So that was, oh, wow. yeah, that was definitely pretty awesome. <laughs> and uh, a lot of the wrestlers, because they would obviously, they were wrestling, you know, over at the Civic Arena or whatever it was. So that was, but the most significant one, in my, I guess, in my mind would be B.B. King. So. Yeah, I actually maybe I should throw in that I shook hands with Johnny Cash. Oh, hey! That wasn't at the at the hotel though. That was at a concert where after three hours of singing, like uh, he started shaking hands with the audience. I only got his left, but that's good enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, to touch greatness like that. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I think we uh, we've definitely covered a a lot of interesting topics and. Uh, the reason I wanted to interview you was you know, being that this is the Neanderthal mind and it's, you know, it's about how our Neanderthal ancestors lived and, you know, how they developed and what they developed, their characteristics really still has an effect on us today. And then with you connecting Neanderthals with autism, I thought it would be a pretty good topic to get into. So that's, that was one of the bigger reasons I wanted to sit down with you. And uh, like I said in the beginning, I, I definitely appreciate you stopping by to sit down and have a conversation with me about that. You're welcome. Well, I'll send you an email on that. Anyone that you 
think would like to be on the, the podcast, but I'll send you an email. And if you, you can think of anybody, definitely send them, send yeah, them an uh, email and I'll get in touch with them. Like I, I can't think of any, any of my friends, but uh, like one interesting person would be uh, John Hawk or John Hawks. Like he's a, you, you probably know him as a Neanderthal researcher. Okay. I'll have to look him up. I don't think I've seen him yet. So, but but you know who I'm talking who I'm talking about. No, yeah, I'm not sure who John Hawks is. Unfortunately, I'm I'm kind of just getting into the whole Neanderthal side of things. And uh, all right, yeah. you should check him out. I, I I just have to make sure that I got his name right, John Hawks, uh, and he he has actually a lot of videos on YouTube. And well, I I tried to bring my theory to his attention was unsuccessful but may maybe you you could get him interested to go on your show who knows sure absolutely yeah no I, I appreciate that and yeah i'll definitely mention your theory to him if if i can get him on the podcast and you know maybe make a connection between you two that way that's great thanks <laughs> well again frank i mean honestly I, I appreciate it so much you you being willing to sit down with me and uh you know go over a few things and I was glad I was able to get my questions to you ahead of time. Uh, I like to try and do that, obviously, because I don't want to just throw something at somebody without them being prepared. And like I said, there was a few questions that I, I don't think I sent you, but there wasn't anything that would have twisted you up that much because <laughs> I definitely would have gotten it to you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I, I greatly appreciate it. And, um, you know, like I said, if there's anything else you, you think you want to express to the communities, uh, by all means, you can do that. All right. If anything in the future, if you, you come up with a new theory or if there's anything else you want to talk about, uh, contact me and I'll be way more than happy to uh, have you back on the Neanderthal Mine. I, I, I appreciate it. That's great. Well, with that, I guess I'll let you get back to it. It's probably getting close to dinner time there. I'm not sure what time you eat dinner. <laughs> it's almost four o'clock, I guess, in your area. This way, it's still breakfast time for me. So I live on my own. I don't have fixed time for dinner. Uh, nothing wrong with that. Huh? Living your life while you want to. And I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, thank you very much, Frank. And uh, uh, like I said, I'll send you an email or if you just if you we've emailed back and forth. So if, if you get the opportunity, maybe uh, just send me an email with a lot of your links in it and uh, I will post it in the show notes. And uh, yeah, we'll send some some people your way. I'm not that big yet, but <laughs> but we're getting there. We're getting there. So yeah. <laughs> that's what I was about to say. <laughs> well, again, Frank, enjoy the rest of your day. Enjoy your weekend. And, and thank you very much for, for coming on to Neanderthal Mine. Thanks for having me. Well, 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 cave dwellers. I warned you to sit back and enjoy, and I hope you did. What an awesome conversation with Frank Ludwig. Make sure you look for all the links to Frank's info and his poems, books and theories in the show notes. There is a lot of info to indulge upon on Frank's homepage. So make a cup of coffee, grab a new beer, make a new drink, because you will be there for a while, looking over everything Frank has to offer for your reading pleasures. Don't miss out next week. I speak with E.A. Meigs. Meigs owns and operates an independent publishing house called Dreamer Literary Productions, LLC, and is the author of the Dreamer Book Series, an Ice Age saga, and get this, book six in that series is currently in production. 
The series is a narration by the main character, Triss, a young Neanderthal man, and follows his life and adventures. A second Ice Age-themed book series for children will debut in 2021. So tune in next time, cave dwellers. Okay, me, take us out of here. Thanks for listening to the Neanderthal Mind podcast. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. If you love what you heard, subscribe, rate, and review the Neanderthal Mind podcast wherever you download your podcasts. If you know anyone that you think would enjoy this podcast, please recommend the Neanderthal Mind to them. Until next week, my fellow cave dwellers, don't forget... To leave your cave drawings and comments on our wall at theneanderthalmind.com.